there everybody, my name is Michelle Craven-Faulkner and I'm a partner in the commercial and projects team here at Shoesmiths. Welcome to the ShoePod sessions. The purpose of these sessions is to be help our listeners to understand the key components of a commercial contract. And today we have a very special edition of our journey through a contract in the form of a discussion relating to the pressures businesses may currently be facing in relation to contracts. These pressures may still relate to those arising as a consequence of COVID and or Brexit or either be compounded or entirely new ones flowing from what's happening in the Ukraine. In light of the complexity of these issues, I'm joined by a couple of my fellow partners today to help us navigate the difficulties you may be facing and how to tackle them. Hi there, my name is Fiona Teague and I'm a partner in the commercial and projects team along with Michelle here at Shoesmiths. Uh, my name is John Smart and I'm a partner in the dispute resolution and litigation team at Shoesmiths. If Michelle and Fiona are the archetypal good cop, I can probably best be described as the bad cop when it comes to force majeure. Now, uh, force majeure used to be viewed as one of the standard boilerplate clauses that were taken from precedence with little or no tailoring. However, when the UK went into lockdown in 2020, litigation lawyers like me turned to force majeure in the hope of finding a get out of jail free card. Fast forward 12 months and we've had Brexit, COVID and supply chain issues galore. And in recent weeks started to see even further supply chain issues arise from the war in Ukraine. So I suppose one of the, the, the first things that we should be looking for now is a, a recap of actually what force majeure is when we're looking in the context of drafting a contract. Yeah, um, and I can pick up on that one, um, John, um, as we have indeed over the last 12 months looked at more force majeure provisions than we have ever done in the course of our careers, I think it's fair to say. Um, but it's just worth taking a step back and recapping, as you say, what force majeure is. Um, because a force majeure um, clause is an express clause in a contract. There is no doctrine of force majeure under English law, which is a really common held um, belief, but it's incorrect. It's a, an express term in a contract that the courts will not imply into a contract. And it is a set of, uh, it's a provision that essentially absolves a party from its inability to perform its obligations in a very specific set of circumstances, often events which are outside of its reasonable control. And those events could be political or natural. Um, and it also impacts a party's ability uh, to claim relief where a counterparty cannot perform. Like any express contractual provision, though, it very much depends on the precise wording of the clause in a contract. And there is no getting away from the fact you have to dig out your contract and look at the exact words of the force majeure provision to understand if it applies and if so, how you invoke it. Uh, in many ways, I think that's the real lesson from the last 12 months. I think previously people looked at a force majeure clause and thought, does it have pandemic in it? Does it have war in it? If it does, I can rely on it. And I think actually the real lesson is it, there is a, a, a war in Ukraine, but unless that is the reason that you're unable to perform your side of the contract, the force majeure clause isn't going to offer you any relief. 
Absolutely. And I think that the, you know, the understanding or the belief that force majeure is something that there is a global definition for as, as well. And quite often, you know, I'm sure we've all seen contracts where it will just say the occurrence of a force majeure event, but there's nothing defined. Um, and, and so that that in itself causes us some real difficulties at times. It, uh, I mean, that's correct. And, you know, some of the examples um, that we have looked at over the course of the past couple of years, really, in the context of Brexit and COVID, is that um, often the force majeure provisions that you think you've got don't do what you necessarily think they do. Um, there's three common, you know, threads that you would usually expect to see. You would usually expect the event to be on, to be beyond the reasonable control of the affected party. But not always, and that still depends upon what the wording says. Um, you would usually um, have a requirement, as John says, that the the party that is prevented or hindered in their performance is hindered or prevented due to the occurrence of that particular force majeure event. But not always. And there are some fancy words that you can use. And it's something we can talk about shortly um, to have workarounds there where it can be, for example, only partial performance that has to um, cause the problem um, and that be a high enough threshold. And thirdly, there, we mustn't forget that there's a duty to mitigate in order to rely on a force majeure provision. Um, and how far do you have to go to show that you have reasonably attempted to mitigate um, in a force majeure scenario? And that is something, again, that's coming across our desks, if you like, with clients um, in real life encountering this issue. Absolutely. And I think the other the issue that we've all found over the last two years, as you say, you know, who's, who'd have thought that when we all started practicing that we would have spent as much time at talking, at thinking and looking at force majeure provisions as we have done over the past couple of years? But, but from a structural point of view, the definition of force majeure event isn't even the half of it. it. It's all very well saying there is a force majeure event, but what flows from that force majeure event? At what point do you have to serve notice to say that there's a force majeure event? Do you have to send notice when the force majeure event ceases to take effect? What happens if both parties are suffering from a force majeure event? And then what happens during that period? You'll see some clauses which are, you know, will have a structure in there that parties have to get together to collaborate, to meet, to, to agree a workaround. But others just say if the force majeure event is continuing for a period of, in some cases, as, as little as three weeks, then the parties have the right to terminate. Well, you know, as we've seen over the past couple of years, three weeks or even three months just isn't sufficient. So you've got a whole load of contracts that are just in some sort of limbo without anybody really knowing what happens next. But it also totally depends on what side of the fence you are on in terms of whether you are the customer or supplier here. And that is the real, I mean, key thing. Force majeure clauses have become a bit, have become the star of the show in a way, having been kept backstage for a long time. And what we have to remember is at the outset of entering into a contract, um, this is the party's chance to allocate risk between themselves down the line if the unexpected happens. It's a bit like um, you may look at a liability clause um, scrupulously. It's another opportunity to, to do that. So it's a case of thinking about contracts you're about to enter into as well as the ones you're already tied into. 
Yeah, and I think one of the things that, that comes out as a bit of a theme is this this idea that actually what flows from the clause itself, because actually a lot of people have come to us and said, look, th this is a contract that's become more expensive for me. It's less profitable for me. Can I rely on a force majeure clause? And actually nine times out of ten, a, a financial hindrance or financial less profit to a deal it isn't something that constitutes a hindrance or prevention for a force majeure clause. So the fact that it is a less financially attractive deal is no longer enough. And that's something I think we're seeing a lot of people come out of COVID and into the new world looking at ever more carefully. Yeah, and that also plays into the workaround point about the duty to mitigate. It might well be more expensive for the performing party to perform to the contractual standard, but that doesn't necessarily um, get them out of the obligation. That is just something that has to be factored in when looking for a workaround. And there is no obligation on the counterparty to accept a workaround that means you are not compliant with your contractual obligations, by the way. Absolutely. And that can that can lead. You know, we've obviously seen huge increases in raw material prices and things like, you know, looking for derogations against certain qualities of raw materials because we know that we can hold those prices and, you know, for, for a week, however long. Um, and, and, you know, the customer is not obliged to accept that. The customer has issued a specification. I mean, it's interesting when when you know when we had the the ability to do some forward planning for Brexit, um, you know we were introducing Brexit provisions into contracts wherever we could to enable the parties to collaborate and discuss and agree in the event that a Brexit event made a contract more difficult to deliver. But that was only accepted in certain circumstances, and it was only accepted in relation to Brexit. So. You know, who knows why the raw material prices are increasing now? Who knows why the lead times are increasing now? Are they due to Brexit? Are they due to COVID? Are they due to what's happening in the Ukraine? They could be due to any number of things, which goes back to the point that just because war is mentioned in the force majeure definition doesn't necessarily mean that that's why things are costing you more or the lead times have been increased. And, and I think I think that the other thing that's worth noting is it might be that actually the provisions that people need to be looking at are not force majeure provisions. It's it's you know it's doing that trawl through the contract to see if there is anything else that can help. You know, I, I think that's right. It's what else can help me. That could be the our famous return of the MAC material adverse consequences clause. Again, there's no magic in the name. It's they're usually embedded in some sort of corporate transaction, but no harm in looking to see if there is equivalent wording that says you can either get out of the contract or sidestep it somehow if things have changed. Um, that it might be you look at um, pricing provisions where you do have the ability to um, shift your pricing um, and make pricing adjustments in certain circumstances. It's a case of not leaving any stone unturned in terms of looking at the contract. And the other thing to remember, which um, we've certainly advised clients in the context of COVID is where everyone in the market is similarly impacted or more likely to be similarly impacted than if it was, for example, a fire or flood that impacts one party in an isolated way. And you could have issues across your entire supply chain with no supplier being much better off than another, in which case 
your contract may not help you and you might be back or might not help you in a, on a practical basis anyway and you might be back to putting your thinking caps on to sit down and communicate with your supplier or your supply chain to understand what you can agree outside of the contract in order to achieve your objective for the best and then of course remember to try and capture that and enshrine it in a legally binding way so as to sidestep your contractual obligations because we are in um, a unique uncharted territory here yeah it's unprecedented <laughs> yeah it's interesting isn't it because that's almost where the commercial and the legal overlap it, it, you can have the most beautifully drafted one-sided contract but actually if you really need this supplier or you really need this customer and there's a commercial imperative holding them to a rigid fixed price deal might push them into some form of insolvency and if no one else in the market will be able to offer the pricing or the supply terms that you've got you might actually need to consider voluntarily making a concession to the contract just because of the commercial imperative on keeping that arrangement going of course and you know it's it's that whole thing isn't it that you, you might feel that you're in a fantastic position as a customer you might even have benchmarking provisions which enable you to go out once a year and go and do the benchmarking but but as Fiona says if everybody in the market and is in exactly the same position as a customer what do you do because as you say you can nail your supplier to the wall and say you must deliver this and this is the price and this is the lead time and if not you know there's liquidated damages and x y and z but if that supplier can't deliver then you're not going to get whatever it is that you want to receive <laughs> and and so what what happens then i mean i said that one of the um one of the best things that may have flown out of COVID was there's been far more collaboration between customers and suppliers than I think we've ever seen. And, and I think that that just needs to continue now. You know, if you're if you're a customer of a certain standing, it may well be that you have got, you know, purchasing ability to be able to source materials quicker or cheaper than your supplier can. So in which case, have a look at that, do that collaborative working and see whether you can remove the obligation for the supplier to supply you with those those bits, whatever it is, or the raw materials and do some free issuing instead. You know, it, it might not sit neatly with what you expect it to from a contracting position, but it will definitely help you get what it is you're looking to receive a damn sight quicker. Um, and, and I think that at the moment that seems to be, and I think we all agree, that seems to be the type of the nature of the query that we're getting the most, doesn't it? It's lead times and it's price increases and it's even, you know, further down the supply chain, suppliers just not being in a position to deliver or not willing to deliver. Yeah, I think that's true. And that brings us to a point that's worth flagging as well, because what do you do if you do receive a force majeure notice? Um, it is worth looking um, not only at the contract to check whether the notice has been validly served on you um, and potentially opening up those broader um, discussions on a without prejudice basis with your supplier. But you also need to think about what other back to back arrangements you are in yourself um, and whether you need to be communicating with those customers and or suppliers and issuing force majeure notices up and down your own um, supply chain. Um, and of course, checking any related finance documents where you may also have related um, notification um, requirements in these sorts of scenarios. 
I think that's a really good point, Finn. I think, again, going back to the definition of force majeure, quite often you will see in a force majeure definition that a supplier's supply chain being unable to supply is not a force majeure. So what happens if you're a supplier and the fact that you're, you know, we saw this off the back of COVID where, where further down the supply chains, you know, factories or units may still have been closed. What happens then? That is not a force majeure event in some cases. The fact that your supplier isn't, you know, is, isn't, uh, isn't able to supply might not get you off the hook. It might not. And it's also worth digging out your um, uh, business interruption insurance or getting on the phone to your broker to understand exactly what yeah. else you have at your disposal. Yeah. I, and I think it seems to me that actually a lot of this goes back to, to what's in the contract, not not because it is lawyers trying to to wheedle out of giving clear answers, but actually a lot of the force majeure relief is conditional on some other eventuality, some other outcome. So that might be you don't get force majeure relief unless you give us notice to this address within this period of time. But if, if you've got those types of conditionality to, to any relief, it's so imperative that you you send the notice at the right time to the right address because otherwise you can have the best drafted force majeure clause in the world but you're not relieved from any liabilities simply because you haven't followed it and it's it's that age-old problem of actually a beautiful contract in the drawer somewhere that no one is looking at is often not worth the paper it's written on no that's true and time bars that's another bear trap i mean it is extremely frustrating for clients to discover they could have would have should have been able to rely on their force majeure provisions but for the fact they haven't complied correctly with the um provisions needed to invoke them and rely on them so do we turn now to the bad cop point of which you are most definitely not john um, and, and is it is it perhaps worth us having a think about you know, the force majeure provision doesn't work. Um, it doesn't do what uh, somebody needs it to. But um, and, and so but you're unable to deliver either because it's no longer financially viable or because you just cannot for love nor money get hold of, of the, the bits that you need to get hold of or the lead times make the contract pretty much impossible to to perform. What do we do then? Yeah, and it's it's interesting you use those words pretty much impossible because I think a, a lot of litigators uh, during COVID and actually a little bit to, to do with the war in Ukraine as well, have got very excited about the possibility of of going back to something called frustration and saying, look, this, this contract is genuinely impossible for us to perform and therefore neither party should be held to it. Now, the, the problem with frustration and why actually we didn't see it invoked successfully very often post-COVID, is it's that word impossibility. It is not that this contract became harder to perform, and it's not that this contract is less profitable, it's not that we're late. And I think actually you've even seen that in historic cases around sanctions. You know, even if a party is on a, a government sanction list, you know, you could still, for example, apply for a license to deal with that party. So it's not impossible. And I think that the courts have shown a real reluctance to allow parties to say this contract is impossible to perform unless, as a matter of fact, that impossibility is genuinely made out on the facts. And so nine times out of 10, force majeure is a more probable place to turn 
than that of frustration. But if your back's against the wall and, and you haven't got relief, if there is genuinely impossibility in, in a contract, particularly where time might be of the less of the essence, then you can start to look to things like frustration without a doubt. And John, do you have to have already exhausted any force majeure related rights and protections before seeking to rely on a frustration? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So a, a lot of people say that the two are mutually exclusive. And the reason for that is that it's that impossibility touch point again. For the, the contract has to be impossible to perform for frustration to be available. So, for example, if you have already agreed between the parties under the force majeure clause that one party doesn't have to do something or is relieved from responsibility during a force majeure event, that might relieve them from liability such that frustration just simply isn't available because it isn't impossible anymore. The parties have predetermined where they want to put risk. But nevertheless, you can always look at the, the frustration argument in a different angle. So, for example, if the force majeure clause um, covered, for example, a, a delay due to, to conflict, then frustration might still be available if, for example, the subject matter of that contract no longer exists. For example, it was destroyed uh, in the conflict. So you, there are always linguistic nuances that you can look to to try and carve out from the force majeure clause. So I think what I mean, obviously, the, we've been focusing predominantly at the moment on existing contracts haven't we i think looking to people who may be negotiating contracts at the moment you know what what are the the key things that we would suggest there i mean definitely looking at the definition of force majeure i think and, and you know and what the processes surrounding force majeure have got to be up there and and i think almost outside of the fact that we've got the conflict at the moment one of the things that was becoming hugely apparent is looking at price increase provisions is, is just something that we have got to start focusing on now you know who knows what's going to happen with the price of steel or the price of goodness knows what else over, over the coming months whether you're impacted by co2 prices or things like that i mean what what else do we think we need to be looking for yeah i mean within the force majeure clauses itself i mean they do need as as we said they need to be looked at um and discussed with clients because historically we don't discuss these with clients and you have to think through how do you think you're likely likely to be impacted, depending on which side of the fence your client is on. But trying to think how you might be impacted and spreading the risk and drafting accordingly. But one of the tripwires in particular to be aware of is the wording that says a force majeure event has to be unforeseeable because, of course, off the back of COVID, anything to do with COVID and related restrictions, if you're entering into a contract right now, well, that's COVID still around, that's foreseeable. And same with the, the war and sanctions and conflict. Well, that's that's happening now. That's foreseeable. So two things. Make sure your wording doesn't cut you off at first base um, with that with that restriction. And also make sure you're having discussions with your counterparties to actually understand how they're dealing with the practical and commercial risks. And I think what's so interesting is that as, as you know, as we keep saying, we've not looked at these provisions in such close detail before, is that before a couple of years ago, the only discussions that you'd perhaps have when you were looking at a force majeure clause is how long should the period last for before you can terminate? And, and if you would say to people, well, what would happen in this situation? How would you deal with it? Nobody had a reference point because nobody had been through it before. Well, 
we've kind of lived through it now for a couple of years. So I think it, it does become a little bit easier now to say, well, what would happen if your supply chain wasn't available to you anymore? What would happen if your prices you know, went through the roof? What happened if you had, uh, you know, weren't able to move staff around in the way that you needed to? Um, and, and I, you know, just that level of collaboration needs to be there. And that needs to be there no matter what side of the fence that you're on. Because as we've said, you know, a customer may have the best, most one-sided contract with the biggest sticks that you could imagine to beat over the head with the suppliers. But if ultimately you need the goods or services that you've ordered, then that big stick isn't necessarily going to help you. I think that's the key, isn't it? It's almost not the legal takeaway. It's supply chain resiliency is now at the forefront. It's now no longer enough to have one great supplier at the greatest price. Now what you are better suited to obtain is three suppliers so that if one of those falls over, then you've got two others that can try and sustain your role in that supply chain. Because at the moment, a lot of people are feeling vulnerable from a, a financial perspective, from a supply chain perspective. And if someone you rely on to, goes into insolvency, then actually you might find yourself very, very exposed. And that's true. And again, the legal takeaway from that point is make sure the wording in your contract then doesn't grant exclusivity to a particular supplier so that you have maximum flexibility on the ground. Absolutely. So I think I think we've probably answered the question as to what happens if you get three partners on a podcast that's only supposed to be about eight minutes long. Uh, and that, that is that we can uh, we can chat about this topic in particular um, till till the cows come home. So I think I think that's probably uh, a point at which we should draw today to the end we do hope that you've found this informative as you can see we could talk about this point all day i think that it's um it's so difficult when you're thinking about something that it is down to, in most cases to the drafting of the contract so what i will say is if you need any assistance in relation to any of the points that we've discussed today then please don't hesitate to get in touch with any of fiona john or i and we'd be very happy to help and that's whether that's anything to do with you know what's still the impacts of covid and brexit or indeed the impact of the war uh, in the ukraine you know we're here to help you to prepare and manage and protect your business um so all that remains for me to say is to thank you very much uh, for listening everybody Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks.